0: Thank you. Well, as I said, we're in a sermon series on First John, and First uh, John, we call it a letter, but it, it's really a collection of sermons, which is kind of odd to preach a sermon on somebody else's sermon, but that's kind of what we've been doing this summer in our series on First John, and today uh, we go to First um, John chapter 2, just the end of it, and we'll go through chapter 3, verse 3. I'm reading from the NIV, that'll be on the screen, but let's get right to the text. John writes this, And now, dear children, continue in him so that when he appears, we may be confident and unashamed before him at his coming. Talking about Christ being him. If you know that he is righteous, you know that everyone who does what is right has been born of him. Chapter 3, verse 1, See what great love the Father has lavished on us, that we should be called children of God. And that is what we are. The reason the world does not know us is it did not know him. Dear friends, now we are children of God, and what we will be has not yet been made known. But we know that when Christ appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. All who have this hope in him purify themselves just as he is pure. This is God's word. John, as we've seen in, in this letter and his collection of sermons, loves to use familial language, family language. He's, he's always describing things as like, you know, there's spiritual parents and there's spiritual children and there's spiritual young adults and we're all one family. And he drops a bomb on the ancient world with these, these young churches to say we're children of God, technos in the Greek. It's a term of endearment and uh, in ancient world, you know, to be a, a son of God was to be kind of like a Marvel superhero or something, like, you know, like Zeus, you know, like you'd have to do something to achieve that. You'd have to be spectacular. And here we see the most beautiful distinguishing uh, difference between all the world religions and, and the claim of Christianity. Christianity, the gospel, says that we are made daughters of God and sons of God, not because we're so darn strong and perfect and holy and lovely and moral. To the contrary, it's just been a gift that has been provided. There's been labor pains, no doubt, but it wasn't our pain that achieved it. It was the cross. The labor of our birth into son or daughter status came by God. Other religions will say, you know, if you want nirvana or a certain status or to be a child of God or to be right with the deities, you have to clean yourself up first. You have to purify yourself. But here we see such a reversal. It's like, no, you get to be sons now because of the cross. You're a daughter now with all the privileges, with all the love. He's not going anywhere. Dad's here because the son died on your behalf so that you might become sons and daughters of God. And now... On the other side of that reality, yes, purify yourself. And, and we'll see as we we meditate on the scripture that, gosh, the motivation is so different to live a moral life, to do the right thing. It's not it's not to be accepted. We're already accepted. It's to honor. It's to please God. It's to love. It's not to perform. The first thing, if you are taking notes, comes really from one John two twenty nine jumping a little bit into the passage, but it's this. God's children bear a family resemblance to their heavenly father. 2.29, of course, says, if you know that he is righteous, you know that everyone who does what is right has been born of him. Now, this little, little verse might cause some of you anxiety. It's like, does that mean that if you're just not righteous all the time, you're not born of him? Because if we're honest, there are times where we're not doing so well in the righteousness thing. And I really believe that, that John uses hyperbolic language and familial metaphorical language to invite us to think in, in bold terms, but also to, to say something to the effect of, don't, do you have a family resemblance? Because like, if you don't, that's a problem. It's a funny thing, though, about a family resemblance. I mean, how many parents remember looking at that ultrasound picture the first time? And you're like, what is that little creature? And how would that? turn into a full-grown mini-me, I, I don't see any family resemblance. And then, of course, when they're born, all children look like Winston Churchill, right? <laughs> they're just like these angry little guys. They might as well have a little pipe, you know? And it's like, well, that doesn't look like me. And some of you, you know, even as you've grown, your biological parents, you look at them and you don't look much like them. And some of you are totally mini-me's. My little daughter, Adeline, is like an exact small replica of my wife. And, And so family resemblance is a tricky thing. It varies. It's a gradual thing. Those of you who have been adopted by parents who are not your biological parents will even admit family resemblance is is not limited to blood. You have picked up some of the mannerisms, haven't you? You've picked up some of the bad habits and the good habits of the family that you were adopted into. And and so John is saying, "Are, are you not perfect? Well, that's okay. But but meditate on the the simple question, do you have a family resemblance? And what would that be? Well, that would be like the fruits of the Spirit. Are you growing in those? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, self-control, faithfulness. Did I get all nine? If you miss one as a preacher, that usually means it's your besetting sin, you know? (laughs) Um, You know, Jesus is described by John elsewhere as coming as the Savior who is full of grace and full of truth, not 50% grace, 50% truth, like 100, 100. And so are there moments in your life where you say, you know, I'm growing more gracious with people, or "I'm, I'm actually growing to discern the truth more clearly and care about what's actually true versus what's a lie? When you notice that, this should comfort you, not condemn you. It should say, you know, I'm growing into a family resemblance. My children are small, 10, 8, and 5. And so I see little mannerisms, and they take after me in little ways. But but I'm really kind of excited to watch them age into their 30s and 40s by God's grace, because that's right—that's when you get to say, "Wow, you've like walked like your dad. You 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 have nose hair like your dad. You know, so, you know whatever. You really get to see the family resemblance, and hopefully, you'll start to see the spiritual resemblance. We pray that our kids care about the gospel, and they care about eternal things. And John is saying if you don't see any family resemblance to the character of Jesus, that's a, that's a major check engine light in your spiritual life. You, that, that means maybe you're just playing church. Maybe you've never really given your life to the Lord. But for the vast majority of us, we have given our life to the Lord, and now it's a process of growing up into the family resemblance so that when we stand before Jesus, he'll see it, and there'll be joy. The second uh, thing to take notice, and this really focuses in on 1 John 3, 2. Let me read uh, 3, 2. Dear friends, now we are children of God, and what we will be has not yet been made known. That's implying as great as it is to be a child of God, like, you're going to be something even better than that. And what we will be has not yet been made known, but we know that when Christ appears, we shall be like him the ultimate growing up, when Christ comes back. Now, some scholars think this is when Christ returns to create the new heavens and the new earth. Some people debate and say, no, it's upon when you die and you meet Christ. It's instant. You know, honest people can disagree. Mileage may vary. But the point is, you will see Jesus face to face one day and you will become like him because you saw him. Or to put it another way, what we see in this life transforms us gradually when we see Christ it will transform us completely you guys heard the the phrase i just can't unsee that right i had a i had this scoundrel of a undergraduate student when i was a resident assistant in the dorms in wisconsin and he he would streak and he was he was a, a heavy-set gentleman and I, I had to keep saying, you can't run around without your clothes on because people are coming to me, and they're like, I just can't unsee that. And he, he just got a kick out of it. He had a very healthy body image, I guess. Um, so some of the stuff we can't unsee is kind of funny, and it's trivial. And, and, and as parents or grandparents or mentors in the lives of children, we're always trying to monitor their digital Intake. You know, what does common sense media say about that? Even if we're not good with ourselves, we're watching a movie we know we shouldn't, we, we at least want it for them, and what, that should tell us something, right? Remember the, the old little nursery rhyme, be careful little eyes what you see. Be careful little ears what you hear. Because it's just common sense, it, it is our experience, that what we see and what we steep our minds in does seem to have a profound effect on our character when little kids See, dad hit mom. That little kid is much more likely to engage in domestic violence as an adult because it's been modeled, you see. And so it matters what you see. Some of you, and I I would put myself in this last political season, you, you were glued to the news or to your favorite podcast about politics, and you turned into a cranky political person for a while. And you just realized, I need to not... Just watch that 24-7. I need to fix my eyes on Jesus because the point of this life is not to become more and more politically persuaded this way or that way or so right about divisive issues. The point is to become a man or a woman who resembles the author of our faith, our Savior, who, who actually learns over time to think like Jesus and to feel emotions like Jesus and to act and behave like Jesus I remember um, you get two weeks of mid-tour leave when you deploy to a combat zone. I remember you can fly anywhere. I, I got a ticket to see my little sister Michelle get married in California, in Orange County. And, and I was in a really ugly part of the Middle East. And so it got to the point, have you guys ever just looked at something so long and you close your eyes and you see those things? Like when I play Legos with my kids too long, I'll like close my eyes and I just see the minifigures. When I closed my eyes, I saw barbed wire and, and gun barrels and the desert. And that's kind of an ugly place to be, but that's what you saw, just sand. And, and anyways, I travel to L.A. on mid-tour leave, and I pull up to John Wayne Airport in Orange County, California, and my dad picks me up. And they had rented this beach house for Michelle to get married at. And I, I just remember closing my eyes to kind of get ready to see my wife, who I hadn't seen for a half a year and I just saw the barbed wire, and I saw how all that was ugly. But then I opened them, and these double doors of a fence opened up, and there was my wife, just looking beautiful, but behind her was just this pristine Pacific Ocean. There was wonderful gardens on both sides. It was just the most idyllic thing that I've ever seen. And it was a weird experience, because... I couldn't unsee what I saw in Iraq, but then, all of a sudden, I can't unsee what I just saw in Orange County, California, and somehow, the latter made up for the former. The beauty compensated for the ugliness. And maybe that's a picture of the principle that basically says, you're gonna see some hard things on this side of eternity, and you'll carry those things with you, and they'll shape you, and you'll limp through life at times. Because of that, you'll be traumatized. You'll, you'll see things you shouldn't have seen. And yet, when you fix your eyes on Jesus, your Savior, it's going to be made up for. It's going to, all that stuff will melt away. Jesus is the one face that you can't unsee for eternity. And he will make all those other minor, terrible things that you can't unsee go away. And that's really good news for some of you who really struggle with having seen some hard things. You know, as a pastor, I get a really interesting view at weddings. I mean, I wish I could kind of wear a GoPro, but that would be irreverent probably. But like, but I mean, it's right when you stand up there and the grooms here, because everybody's nervous, but you've done this like a thousand times, so you're just kind of twiddling your thumbs. So you know, when you're bored, you're kind of people-watching, and you're looking at the groom and wondering, man, he's not bending his knees. I give him 50-50 to buckle, you know. And, and, he's, lo- and he's looking down the aisle, and then the bride comes, and then the dad just loses it. And he's, the dad's, like, trying to go slower to make it last. and It's really interesting, people-watching. But what I've noticed throughout the years as I do weddings is that moment when the bride and the groom lock eyes, they're changed for better or worse. And, and, you know, I do premarital with these couples, so I kind of know all their history and their secrets and stuff. So sometimes one of them has a look of shame in their eyes when they lock eyes. And you can just tell that one just feels very unworthy to be with the, the other, or very disappointed because, you know, they made decisions that, that really hurt their partner, whatever it was. And sometimes there's just a confidence where they've prepared and they, they've leaned into it and they've trusted God for this day and it's just nothing but celebration and there's every variation in between but we're given this picture that we're going to lock eyes with the lover of our soul someday and whatever has transformed us gradually it's not that that's irrelevant but when we see Christ it will change us completely we'll be completely changed First John 2:28, the beginning of the text says this, And now, dear children, continue in him or have union, remain in union with Christ, so that when he appears, we may be confident and unashamed at his coming. And that leads us to our third point here. The more like Jesus we become now, the more joyful we'll be when we see Jesus face to face the more like Jesus you choose to become by the power of the Holy Spirit in this life, the more loving and gracious and kind and fast to forgive and all of that you choose to embody now, the more joyful that moment where you lock eyes with your Savior will be. That's just true. We don't want to read more than what's clear in the text, so I don't want to speculate, but we can at least say this. For some of us, there will be a sense of shame. And I don't mean the, the, the toxic shame, like the psychological shame that, that says you're worthless and God will never love you. Not that shame. It'll be closer, the Greek word's closer to regret. Kind of like, oh, like when you hit a bad golf shot. Like, oh, wow, hope I, did, hope I don't hit the house. And if I did hit the house, I hope we can move fast you know, It'll just be, it'll be a regret because... Well, Paul uses an analogy in uh, 1 Corinthians uh, 3.15. Um, He's talking about our lives as building something, like building a house together, building up the church, you know, Christian values in this world, redeeming, suffering, all of that. And I know we have carpenters in this church, so how appropriate. Uh, So, but 3.15 says this. If it is burned up, that which you built, the builder will suffer loss, but yet will be saved, even though only as one escaping through the flames. So Paul says, for some of you, you have totally accepted the sonship, the daughtership thing. You've trusted the forgiving love of Jesus Christ. You you admit that you're a sinner, that you need his grace. And so you you will be with him. You'll see him, and that stuff will burn off of you. But it'll be a regret, because everything you built in this life will be scrapped for the most part. Your part of the project is going to have to be torn out and thrown in the fire pit. And that's a sobering thing, to spend all your life, all your money, all your God-given abilities and energy into something that in the end, the the one voice of truth that can't be disputed with will look and just say, I love you. You're my son. You're my daughter. Dad's not going anywhere, and you're going to be with me forever. But I, I had such hopes for you. You know, that is the worst, isn't it? If you had a parent that was just a really good, even steady temperament parent, and you really respected them, and they lived an honorable life, those are the type of parents that you don't want to disappoint. Especially when they say that phrase, I'm not mad, I'm just disappointed. You're like, I'd rather you be mad, come on, like, give me some penance or something. Can I make this up? That's the thing about disappointing someone you really love who really doesn't deserve to be disappointed. You can't make it up fully. And by God's grace, you don't need to. Now, this is complicated because there is no sorrow that heaven cannot and will not heal. So I don't believe we'll live in perpetual regret with our head down because you're a son and you're a daughter and what you will be is not yet made known but you will be at least this you'll be like him and if you're going to be like jesus you're not going to walk around like eeyore for eternity but i do think for some of us that moment that moment where we lock eyes will, will hurt to some extent before it heals because we'll be given a, a strong sense of what we missed my friend tom and i write messages together with pastor chad and um Tom taught Japanese for like two or three years right after undergrad. And Tom's really smart and great with languages, Greek and Hebrew. He can learn them fast. So Tom's friend Brad and Tom went to teach Japanese. Well, Brad took Japanese for four years in undergrad. And then he did a home study, like his junior year, in Japan. So he's like, I think I'm becoming Japanese. I really think so. Like that type of (laughs) Japanese. And Tom just kind of was like, yeah, I'll go teach Japanese. That sounds cool. And Tom knew like one or two phrases when he showed up in Japan, which is like, that's wow. And, and Tom told me when we were looking at this text, he said, that was the best year for Brad's life and the worst year in my life. Because I was so isolated. I couldn't speak the language. And that culture doesn't have a whole lot of tolerance for people who want to teach them, but like didn't bother to learn more than, hi, my name is Tom. Like, you know. And so he just spent the whole year learning. Now, it's not that Tom didn't get to stay in Japan and have the experience, and once he learned the language, he was fine and enjoyed it. But you want to be Brad and not Tom in this eternal metaphor. You want to have learned the language of heaven so that when you stand before your king, it's a relief. Oh, finally, a place where people forgive instantly. Finally, a place where, where the fruits of the Spirit, they're just the norm. Finally, Humility is a standard feature on every model. <laughs> we just all are. Another metaphor, not to tax, tax you on metaphors, but Pastor Chad, when I first met him, was peculiar for a number of reasons. The, the first which, like when I was like, what do you do for fun? And he said, well, I like to be active and outdoors. I go, oh yeah, me too. What, like, what does that look like, you know? But, oh, for me? Well, I go on walks, you know, sometimes. And he goes, yeah, me too. I said, oh, okay. I quickly learned that his version of a walk is different than mine. So, so Chad, I have permission to, to tell you about this, but Chad literally hikes three to six miles a day with a ruck on every day, except for Saturday when he does a good 10 plus, you know. And he would do more on, on the weekdays, but he's got the whole job thing and, you know. And why would a person do that? Well, Chad two or three times a year goes to like Wyoming or Montana and he goes to places that you could go to, like state parks, but he sees the same thing from a viewpoint you do not see it from because when he camps and when he hikes, he does like a minimum of 20 miles a day. He's so intense with this, he has a hard time having friends come along with him because not everybody's up for that because not everybody trains like that because that's a little crazy, but he takes pictures on his phone, and he takes videos, and then he sends them to his friends and staff. And I'm looking at this, and it's like, I've been to this state park, and it didn't look like that. Well, I wasn't on the top of the mountain. I wasn't 20 miles a day for eight days in. And I guarantee you, if I went with Chad, I don't think I would enjoy that. that. That when I see the mountain, I'll be the mountain. I mean, I will just be 20 miles behind him. And, in other words, what are you willing to sacrifice? How are you called to train in this life? How am I called to live now like no one else so that I can live and see the mountain like no one else later? So that when I see my Savior, not that I'm better than anybody or you're better than anybody, but you're just more prepared. You know Japanese when you go to Japan. One, one preacher I remember the joke, he said, he was teaching on hell, heaven and hell once, and someone asked a tough question in the Q&A afterwards, and, and his answer to the question was something like, he said, well, some people are in hell by their own choice because they just really wouldn't like heaven, and the guy challenged him. He said, like, what would be an example of that? And he's like, I don't know, like, if you were a sold-out white supremacist, that whole every tongue and tribe and nation bit of heaven would really stress you out. And so maybe God in his mercy allows you to not eternally subject yourself to kind of a little more diverse crowd than you're, than you're into. And I just thought that was interesting, but it does bear the point. If you accept Christ as Lord, you'll be in heaven with him for eternity. But might you find that you have some acquired tastes and some, some work to do because you spent 70, 80, 90 years running in the wrong direction in certain areas of your life, completely confusing what obedience looks like in this area or that. And now, when all the complexities and all your justifications fall and everything is burned off of you, you're going to have to get used to the way that God always intended to. And the thing is, I think we'll know deep down, He was always right. We were always wrong in this area or that area. I want to close just with an invitation to do something that probably will hurt, but I think it's worth it. Kind of like Chad hiking. I would invite you to have a conversation around this question. Will glory hurt? Glory is a short, shorthand for seeing Christ face to face. And I think I've shown my cards. I said, yeah, for, for all of us, for most of us at least, I think it will hurt a little bit. For some of us, you guys are saints, man. You just got like one ketchup stain on the white robe that's going to get laundered, and it, it won't be that much of a transition. But for, for you personally, what would it look like to sit down with someone who knows you That's criteria one. Criteria two is someone you can take it from, because that's sometimes not the same person, right? There are people you can take criticism from you, but they don't really, really know you. Or there are people that really, really know you, like the person you married, and you're not so good at taking criticism from that person. Some of you married couples probably shouldn't be each other's partner because it's just a little too close to home, or you didn't practice and hone the gift of taking criticism. But if you have someone who knows you and and you're willing to take instruction and criticism, Pastor Chad's a good example, because like, he, he can say hard things in such a friendly way, like the vel, vel, velvet hammer, you know? But um, at, you would ask this question, in what ways do I already resemble my true father, my heavenly father? This would be an opportunity to be encouraged. Well, you're actually so loyal. Like if Len and I sat down and Len's like, give it to me, Mike, I would say, you're embodying your heavenly father's character because Jesus Who is the visible image of the invisible God said, I came to serve and not be served. I came to wash feet. And Len, you're always in that booth. You're always running the details and in the background, not getting the glory. And that in and of itself is a characteristic that you're embodying your true father. And you can think of ways that you're doing that. And your friend would tell you that. And then you would ask, what gifts or traits or strengths do you see in me that reflect your nature? Some of this is less to do with you doing anything good. It's just, no, God gave you the gift of wisdom, and I see wisdom in you. You have a natural sense of discernment, and God is the, the Father and the source of all wisdom, or mercy, or whatever it is. Then you might ask: in what ways do I need to be transformed by what I see, hear, and do? In what ways am I being transformed? Well, Bob, you play a lot of tennis. Not that there's anything wrong with tennis, but it seems like you're, you're more into tennis than Jesus. And I'd hate for you to turn into like a tennis ball instead of a man who learns to think and act and feel like Jesus. Or spouse or friend, you're really good at watching every episode and every series on Netflix. Like you've, you've, you're very good at follow through on that. But if I'm being honest, I don't think you know the first names of our neighbors. So maybe we need to give a season of Netflix up to come to the neighboring thing. See how I did that? That was just a little plug for them. (laughs) You might ask, am I changing into the image of Christ or am I changing into something else? And this is serious. For some Christians, you're going to stand before Jesus and you're going to see all in a moment. And it's going to be a regretful moment. You're going to be like, I spent so much time just becoming a, a better... Republican, or a more devoted Democrat, or an activist around this cause, or a competent fill your profession in here, or even a good thing like a good parent. But I spent so little time reflecting on my sonship, my identity as a daughter, and how I can resemble the family character. You, if you're really courageous, would ask what parts of my life need purification because that's what the text says, all who have this hope that we're going to see him face to face purify ourselves just as he is pure. So wh- where do I need to purify myself? What parts will have a hard time transitioning to life eternal? What might leave me ashamed at the Lord's return? These are tough questions to ask and you can only do it with the help of the Holy Spirit. that change is only possible with that. But it's only possible with community, too. It's very rare to see a lot of life change on your own. And so I would invite you to hear these words from John as we close, not with condemnation, but as an invitation. And now, dear children, continue in him, so that when he appears, we may be confident and unashamed before him at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you know that everyone who does what is right has been born of him. See what great love the Father has lavished on us, that we should be called children of God, and that is what we are. The reason the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Dear friends, we are children of God, and what we will be has not yet been made known, but we know that when Christ appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. All who have this hope in him purify themselves just as he is pure. Amen.